Coming up, we say happy birthday, Canada, going long with Peter Mansbridge and talking just a little bit about Captain Canuck. There had actually been a few Captain Canadas. I think there had been about four, and one of them had moose horns. He comes up, he says, hey, you got a great voice. Have you ever thought about being in broadcasting? And I said, no, I've never thought about that. And he said, well, I, you know, I run the station here, and I've got a job opening with late night shift. Uh, would you be interested? And I thought, this is crazy. Back in 75, I was writing uh, about Captain Canuck in the future, in the relatively near future, and I set the date as 1993. Right. And, and, and I, <clears throat> you know, and 1993 seemed hard to imagine back then. You don't have to be shaking or, you know, throwing up in the corridor. You, you want to be realized what you do is important, that uh, there's a nervous energy associated with that, and that's a good thing, and you can draw upon that. Uh, and so I, you know, I still have, you know, I'm not shaking, but I still have that nervous energy before every program I do. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. We've just gotten back from a big meal of beaver claws and female bacon in the celebration of Canada Day. That was in the outside world. Inside, we're celebrating with two conversations. A little bit later on, Richard Cumley will tell us about the beginnings of Captain Canuck. First up, though, depending on where you are in the country, Canada may sound like the plaintive cry of a loon, or like maybe side one of Russia's 2112, or like the Atlantic Ocean washing up on a nearly deserted beach, or like the sizzle of female bacon in a frying pan, or snowshoes walking on freshly laid snow, or maybe it's the sound of toonies jingling in your pocket. But for decades, one sound, Peter Mansbridge's voice, has been heard in every corner of the country. The anchor of The National steps down this week after 34 years as the chief news correspondent of the CBC and 50 years with The National Broadcaster. We talked about how this high school dropout became one of the most trusted voices in the country. We talked about his career. We talked about getting nervous. We talked about where news is going. Here's Peter Mansbridge in advance of signing off after 50 years with the CBC. It's really tough to explain to uh, journalism students that in fact I started, you know, I got my start in this business in an airport. It was uh, Churchill, Manitoba in 1968. I was 19, I was a high school dropout. I am a high school dropout. Uh, and uh, I was working uh, at the airport doing everything from loading bags on the plane, fueling aircraft, selling the odd ticket. Uh, when one day on the flight to uh, Winnipeg from Churchill, the ticket agents were busy, asked me to announce the flight on the PA system. I got up there, did the, you know, Transair Flight 106, Thompson the Paul, Winnipeg, <laughs> now ready for boarding. And um, there was a fellow in, this, in the waiting room who was the, it turns out, was the manager of the CBC Northern Service Station in Churchill. He comes up, he says, hey, you've got a great voice. Have you ever thought about being in broadcasting? And I said, no, I've never thought about that. And he said, well, I, you know, I run the station here and I've got a job opening, the late night shift. Uh, would you be interested? And I thought, this is crazy. But it was 1968. It was before this kind of big boom in broadcasting, especially in, in journalism. He had nobody, he couldn't get anybody to take this job. <laughs> nobody. Because and, of the hours? Because of? Because of everything. Yeah. You know, uh, but probably the hours. In Churchill, there weren't many people standing at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> And uh, anyway, so I, you know, I, I 
I got this job, and I, I realized very quickly, I was a late-night DJ, I, I realized very quickly two things. One, I knew nothing about music, and I probably never was going to know anything about music. But two, I loved the idea of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. I loved talking. And so I started a newscast. They didn't have one in Churchill. Small town, 1,000 people, but lots of great stories from polar bears to there was a rocket range there that the National Research Council ran. There was all kinds of interesting stuff. And so I started telling stories and listened to the shortwave to find out how they did it. I uh, was there for three years, got a job in Winnipeg with the CBC, then to Regina, then to Ottawa, Toronto, overseas a little bit, back to Toronto, and then into the job I'm in now, which is crazy. And uh, as you can imagine, I sit at, you know, at Ryerson talking yeah. to the journalism <laughs> students, and they go, this is not fair. <laughs> this <laughs> is really not fair. Have you ever thought what might have happened had you called in sick that day? <laughs> have you ever thought, like, what would I be doing right now? Because I'd be loading bags <laughs> on, uh, on a plane. <laughs> uh, Listen, fate is funny, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, half of it is kind of being in the right place at the right time. The other half is doing something about it. I mean, I, I, I had not done much with my life except to have a good time up until I was 19. And then suddenly this opportunity was there. And, uh, and I loved doing it. And I, and I worked extremely hard. And, you know, the odds were against me uh, at the beginning because I had no experience. Uh, and all that meant is I was going to have to work that much harder. And, and that was back in the days, though, when there was more of a circuit. You started somewhere mm -hmm. like, you know, Churchill, Manitoba, and then you went to Regina, and then you moved to a slightly bigger... Like, yeah. I don't know that that happens as much now. It doesn't happen as much, and, and it should. You know, especially for, for those of us in our industry who... Who feel like we like to tell Canadian stories? Well, if you're going to tell them, you got you, you've got to experience them. Mm -hmm. You've got to have been in different parts of the country. Uh, you know, I try to tell young journalism students who come to see me about you know what's the way forward, and I say get, you know, get out of Toronto. You, you got to experience this country because it's not everywhere in Canada is not like it is in downtown Toronto. You, and you want to see the other side of this place. Uh, and sometimes that takes some convincing because mo most people, you know, they come out of whether it's Ryerson or Carlton or wherever it may be, and they want my job like mm -hmm. now, right? <laughs> so like, move on, Mansbridge. I hear that a lot. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you really, you, you want that other experience. Too. I'm really interested uh, in your first shift on the air because it wasn't like you had aspired to that. No. It just kind of happened. Do you remember the first time that you walked into a newsroom? I remember mine vividly. Well, we, as I said, we didn't have a newsroom in, in Churchill <laughs> right, when, right. when I started. I, I basically had to, to make one. But I do remember my very first on-air words at the CBC, 1968, September. It was around the 18th or 19th <laughs> of September. My very first words were, one moment, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'd had this kind of five-minute training course the, the day before on how to work the, the, the controls because you were on your own. Mm -hmm. uh, you picked records and you spun them. Um, you'd wait through the evening when there was network programming on, and you only had to come on, you know, every half hour and just give a station, you know, this is CHFC for <laughs> Churchill. Temperature is minus <laughs> 400 degrees. <laughs> Um, and uh, then the news would start. It would just come up the line. The one thing that you had to be prepared for was that occasionally the line went down. Right. And so that first night with nobody there but me 
and it was around quarter to nine, the line went down from Winnipeg. So there's like dead air, and I'm going, my God, they never told me <laughs> what I'm supposed to do. But I remembered, because having listened growing up to CBC, that every once in a while somebody would come on and say, one moment, please. <laughs> well, they tried to figure out what was going on. And uh, so I did that. I opened the pot. One moment, please. Close the pot. I thought, what am I going to do now? And then suddenly it came back on. So those were my, my first words. Uh, the first show was a record show, and uh, I was brutal. I mean, I could <laughs> talk, but I really didn't know enough about music right. to, to do. To and was it rock and roll, or were you playing? It, it was yeah. kind of middle of the road, right. but it was the 60s. So it was dominated by, you know, the Beatles yeah. and all that. So it, it was... Uh, but I, I had a bad track record. I remember uh, those were the days where all the uh, all the songs were like two minutes and twelve seconds, or right. one minute fifty eight, you know. And then this song came out from Simon and Garfunkel, "Bridge Over Troubled Water," and it was like five twelve. <laughs> and I said, "This will never make it." I mean, who's ever going to listen to this stuff? So that was the first indication that I was uh, not going to make it in music. Well, my first radio gig was at a place called CKBW in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And I used to look for the longer songs because that meant you could run to the washroom. Yes. You're the only person <laughs> in the building at night. So you're doing the news and you're writing. I used to have to write obituaries, do everything. You know, right. you did the whole thing. And uh, long songs meant there was time to uh, run to the restroom. Or maybe if you played Stairway to Heaven, you could get to the pizza place downstairs <laughs> and get something to eat. But nothing <laughs> worse than getting downstairs. And of course, they'd have the radio on in the store and hear a skip because it was all records back in those days. So right. you know that you'd have to get up there at the speed in of light. In Churchill, we had you know, all the same things. You would look for, for longer music or figure out a way that you could run a few songs together without having to come in between them. Um, but the building we shared, a small radio station, we shared it with the telephone office. So there were telephone operators there. This was Churchill 60s. We were still, you know, there were only like three numbers to a telephone. <laughs> um, so somebody was actually patching them back and forth. And I can recall, I was young, single, you know, on, on, on the lookout. 19, yeah. <laughs> and there was a really good-looking young telephone <laughs> operator who was working. So I was always trying to figure out a way I could get down the hall, down to the telephone office to talk to the telephone operator. I wouldn't call your first night a disastrous first night, but your, you know, your, mm -hmm. your, your first moments on the air, uh, things didn't go exactly as planned. Uh, I think it's important for young broadcasters to have those things, sure. those moments uh, when it doesn't work uh, because it teaches you how to think on your feet. Let me, I'll tell you one, and, and you'll, uh, you'll appreciate this. I, the first big network, CBC radio network thing I was involved with was out of Churchill. It was the, uh, the royal tour of 1970. So the Queen was there, Prince Philip, Charles, Anne. I think it was the, the, the main four of them. And Lloyd Robertson was hosting for CBC Radio. Uh, he'd flown up to Churchill. He was he was doing the hosting job from Churchill. And I was like one of the remote reporters. I was out at this campsite area where Charles was coming by helicopter to land and o open some jamboree. So um, I was on top of kind of like a lifeguard tower. And I was so nervous. It was the first thing I'd done for the network. And I knew, you know, my parents would be listening in Ottawa. And this was a really big deal. And I'd written out pages and pages of notes. And I had them all in my hand like this. On Which top is a of the big tower. mistake. It's big always mistake, a big mistake. Big mistake. So what happens? I hear Lloyd in one ear saying, 
<clears throat> Prince Charles is uh, about to arrive uh, at the uh, campsite where he'll be opening the jamboree. And we have one of our young reporters from uh, CHFC in Fort Churchill, Peter Mansbridge, is there. Peter, tell us what the scene's like. And just as he says that, the helicopter comes over top, <laughs> blows all my notes away. And I'm watching them sort of fluttering to the ground. But as you said, best thing that ever happened. Yeah. So I, you have to go to what you know. Mm -hmm and what you remembered from what you'd written down. And away I went for whatever it was, you know, three or four minutes, told the scene and the, and the story. And, uh, and, and so that worked. And I kind of, that, that helped the, kind of the Mansbridge legend along a little <laughs> bit, if you will. And, uh, and Lloyd always gets a kick out of it and, and laughs about, uh, about that story. But, um, but as you said, you know, Put that stuff aside. Mm -hmm. Go go with what you know. Well, it, but it's a hard lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. And what I found as a as a younger broadcaster that I relied on notes, and I wanted to sound like you, or I wanted to sound like Lloyd. I wanted to sound letter perfect, and everything had to be framed perfectly. And I didn't really get successful at doing this until I decided to become myself. Right. And that was a huge lesson to me. And so when people now today talk to me about how do I find my way in this business, I'm like, don't be like me. Don't be like Ben Mulroney. Don't be, be yourself. Be yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's fine to watch others, <laughs> learn from others. Watch and learn. We've all done that. Uh, but it there reaches a point where you want to be you. Mm -hmm. And you go with what you're comfortable with, the way you like to do things. And uh, either, you know, it works or it doesn't work. But it's you. Mm-hmm. Now, you made the move to television in Winnipeg at CBWT-TV mm -hmm. in Winnipeg. What was the, the, the – because now it's a career for you. Now right. you're, you've left the airport long behind. There's no <laughs> going back. But at that point, did you realize, wow, I can make actually make a living doing this. I can. This is what I'm going to do because well, that's a huge moment. It is a huge moment. But still in 72, I wasn't there yet in terms mm -hmm. of my own thinking. And, and In fact, it was many years later and still occasionally now where I go, <laughs> they're, they're going to catch up to me here soon. They're going to realize this is all smoke and mirrors. Um, but, you know, it was around 72 when I switched to television that they wanted me to be doing more live work on, on air uh, and covering sort of the big breaking stories. And I remember the, the first television, um, major television show that I did was the 1972 federal election, the local inserts. So this was a big election night. Uh, Trudeau, the elder, mm -hmm. uh, won, but just won over uh, Robert Stanfield. Uh, and we'd pop in every like 25 minutes. And so this is the first one I'd done. And I was like really, you know, I was, I was pumped. I was, but I was nervous, very nervous. And I was co-hosting with a fellow named Bill Guest, who used to do all the Reach for the Top shows in yeah, Atlantic Air in, in, in Western Canada. Fantastic guy. Um, and he'd done this for years. So I'm sitting beside him and we're getting, we're one minute away from going on for the first time. And I figure people looking at me would see my heart pounding through my jacket. You've had, yeah. you've known that feeling in the past. And so I look over at Bill and I see his hands are underneath the desk and they're shaking. And I look at him and I go, Bill, like, you're not nervous, are you? And he just looked back at me and he said, the day you're not nervous, son, is the day you shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And he was right about that too. You know, you don't have to be shaking or, you know, throwing up in the corridor. You, you want to be realized that what you do is important, that uh, there's a nervous energy associated with that, and that's a good thing. And you can draw upon that. 
and so I, you know, I still have, you know, a, I'm not shaking, but I still have that nervous energy before every program I do. Well, isn't there the story about how when you were about to interview President Obama, you were walking, I guess, <laughs> into the White House and you looked down and you said, I'm wearing the wrong pants to <laughs> <Yeah>. the suit. <laughs> that's true. And that's nerves. And I'd never, that never <laughs> happened to me before. <laughs> And uh, I had to go racing back to the hotel and uh, and change my pants. But I was nervous. It was a big deal. We, you know, I'd never interviewed a president in in the White House before. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the CBC had never had a one on one with a president in the White House. And uh, suddenly, uh, I was there. And uh, you know, I kept waiting. When are these nerves going to show? And then I looked down and I realized, oh yeah, there they are. I'm wearing green <laughs> pants with, with yeah, a blue suit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nerves? Do you do you feed off them still? Mm-hmm. That is something that that you use as a tool. Yeah, I you know I look for them. I mean, we all have our little mm-hmm. things. You know, Bobby Orr didn't used to wear socks when he when he played hockey. Sidney Crosby, I think, puts on you know ties up his left shoe right. before his right shoe and all that stuff. Um, I you know I look for for nervous energy. I also look for when I leave. My room, whether it's a hotel room or whether it's my uh, my my house, when I'm heading towards a big show, I always stop for a minute at the door and I look back into the uh, room and I try to look at some specific object in the room, remember where it is, and leave. And it, I don't know what, how that started, but I always do it. And I've been as far away, you know, a half a dozen blocks away. And realizing I forgot to do that and go back. Really? So we we all have these these, these crazy things that uh, the, that we do, or at least some of us do, and uh, that's mine. I mentioned newsrooms earlier. I remember the first newsroom that I walked into, and there's a buzz that happens in them, especially when there's breaking news, when something's happening. But you know, in 1970, whatever it was, it was the late 70s for me, 78, 79 probably, uh, I remember people hunched over desks smoking, uh, the big teletype machine that had a little red light on it that would go off if there was breaking news, all that sort of stuff. But it made such an impression on me, and I still get a charge out of it. Do you? Oh, yeah, very much. You know, I still, the urge is there when I hear a fire engine, yeah. a police siren. You know, I got I to gotta follow that. I gotta, what, what's going on? Where is that going? Um, and you know, at, at the heart of it, that's what news is about, right? Mm-hmm. It's what's changed. It's what's different. Like, and you know, so you know, we try to tell stories. We try to uh, uh, stay ahead of the game on what's breaking, and uh, we try to tell them in a way that that is uh, not only informative, but we focus on what's important about it and how it affects people's lives. So while the days of the, uh, you know, the, the, the clattering of the teletype mm-hmm. in the newsroom uh, are gone and so are the days of people hanging over cigarettes, cigars, <laughs> yeah. you know, the bottle of scotch and the, and the bottom drawer of the it, desk. It, it sounds like a stereotype, yeah. but sometimes things are cliches because they're <laughs> true. That's yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you go into the heart of any, you know, still great newsroom and uh, while that atmosphere has changed, the, the thrust is still the same. We want to tell good stories, important stories uh, to people who care about what's going on around them. Um, these are challenging times in mm-hmm. our business. And it's not just in the print world, which seems to be the most obvious one to look at where there are, uh, there are real issues and, and, and real change occurring. But it's everywhere else as well. 
Uh, and, and I don't think any of us are confident of knowing how this is going to end up, other than knowing that people will always want to hear good stories and good storytellers telling them what's important about what's changed in their world. And it's true. We have now, you know, Twitter, Facebook to a certain extent, but Twitter seems to be the place that people come to me and say, I just heard about dot, dot, dot on Twitter. That's a starting point. I think what people maybe have lost sight of a little bit is that that's where you get a headline. That's not where you get the story. That's right. And Twitter's not breaking news particularly. It may publish it first, but they're not finding the story. No. I mean, sometimes because it's a journalist, a legitimate Mm -hmm. journalist uh, breaking the story, they may break it on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Um, In some ways, it's a little like television used to be to print um, 20 years ago. I, you know, I was hosting the national, but I would look at surveys that said 60 to 70% of Canadians get all their news on television. And I would go, this is not good. You know, television is very much, the nightly news is still very much like Cronkite used to describe it mm-hmm. as just the headlines. You've got to go beyond the headlines. You've got to search out more information. And usually where you would search is print, whether it's the daily newspaper or magazines. You'd go deeper to understand better what the story was really about because you weren't getting enough in television. I mean, let's face it, if you, if you took the national or any other network newscast and you took it verbatim, put all the words down, you couldn't fill the front page of the globe. Right? Right. So that's how much written information. Now we got the power of television and pictures and all that, and we, uh, we understand how much extra that's worth. But still in terms of raw information, what's written, there's not a lot on your television. So now you multiply that into today's world on Twitter, you're going to base your knowledge on 140 <laughs> characters? This is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, so Twitter is facing its own challenges already Mm -hmm. because of abuse on the system. People are turning off Twitter. Um, But there are also those who feel that there's still a legitimate way to better inform uh, people through Twitter. They're finding ways to get around the 140 characters. Uh, And so this is all good and it's innovative. Well, the only constant is change. Mm -hmm. There is always change. How has the delivery of news changed for you over the last few decades? You know, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started in television in 72, it was black and white. It was film yeah, as opposed to live and tape like now. And now there was a certain luxury to that. You'd have to have, when I was working for a supper hour show, you had to have your stories all shot by three in the afternoon. Right. Because the film had to go to a lab to be processed. <laughs> you know, to t- you tell people this now and they look at you like, this doesn't make sense. It's really. unimaginable. Yeah. 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 And then when the film came back, you would physically cut that film and take little snippets of it and stick them together. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's how you would make your story. But you'd have that couple of hours in right. between to think about what you were going to say and write your script, talk to more people on the phone and get more information. The journalists of today, the reporters of today, that was, you know, when I was a, a beat reporter, the reporters of today, the demands upon them are so great. The time is, you know, deadline is not three in the afternoon. It's six o'clock at night mm-hmm. for the supper hour shows or 10 or 11 at night for the, for the nightly newscast. Uh, so the pressure's on them 
throughout the day, and they have got to be able to write, think, uh, and execute so much faster than uh, that we did in my day in the mm -hmm. field. Uh, so I have nothing but the, the, the utmost respect for them. But, you know, it, it can also lead to problems. Well, I think the 24-hour news cycle has led to problems mm -hmm. because you have to feed the beast constantly. Yeah. It's a hungry machine. And that's where mistakes happen. That's where you have conjecture. Yeah replacing itself as news. And that to me uh, is where things, I, I, I remember uh, being in Los Angeles, I was on a plane when Anna Nicole Smith died. And by the time I got to Los Angeles, I was working down there, I flicked on the newspaper or the, the television and Wolf Blitzer was saying, well, we don't know how she died, but here are some doctors to tell you any number of ways that she might have passed away. And I was thinking, this isn't news. I no. don't need this information. And that's a, a, a the, if I had to sort of pinpoint the big change that I've seen, that is it for me. Uh, it is. Um, 24 hour news has, has been great in some, uh, in some ways, it has been a, a problem in other ways. Uh, because the demand is so heavy to have somebody in front of a camera at a location telling you the story of what's going on behind them, even if they've never being behind where they're standing right. to find out. <laughs> you know, they're being fed information and yeah. sometimes, I mean, it's happened, or sometimes they're being fed information back from the headquarters of, uh, of the network they're broadcasting yeah. to, which may be on the other side of the country. Right. It's crazy. Um, the reporters I know and respect who are in the field hate that, being put in that position. Mm -hmm. They want to be, yeah, they don't mind coming and talking on camera, but they first want to have done the basic reporting. They need to be able to speak for themselves. You have been uh, anchoring when huge news has broken. Mm -hmm. uh, you were anchoring the coverage of the Gulf War, the war in uh, Kosovo, the September 11th attacks, the 2014 Parliament Hill shootings. How did calls get made? And this relates to what we were just talking mm -hmm. about, about trying to fill but when you're on air live and the story is still developing, how do calls get made as to what goes on air and what part do you play in that? Well, first of all, you, you've got a, a dedicated team of journalists working behind you. Mm -hmm. the, the viewers never see who you have to have faith in and trust in that they're not going to tell you something that, that, that is questionable. Now, on days like the ones you mentioned, especially the, say, 9-11 and the, and the October attacks in Ottawa are, are, are pretty good examples because that story literally unfolded on television. Now, on days like that, you know you're going to get bad information. So what you have to do is you have to bring the audience into that story with you. You have to tell them. You have to warn them that we're in a difficult situation here. We know that something's going on. They're shooting. There are people on the ground, and there are people seriously injured. But we don't have all the details. And we're going to try and walk you through this as we get them and when we're convinced what we're hearing is right. But there are going to be times when what we're told is right turns out not to be right. And the Ottawa ones are a classic example. The police were telling us stuff that turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. So, like, what do you do uh, other than concede to your viewer that there's, there is this potential for problems? Um, now, I like to look at days like that. If you're being responsible in the telling of the story and you're going through your normal kind of check 
process of you know looking for more than one source and 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 and, and seeing things with your own eyes um, that in many ways this is a great opportunity for viewers to see exactly how the news business works on a day-to-day -day basis because you're out covering a story a normal story that isn't a headline maker or that you need to go on and broadcast live but you will follow different leads during the day and some of them aren't going to be right and that's the process and you get them right and you go down different avenues to find out what what the correct uh, uh, information is and in some ways these bigger stories are the same way and viewers get to see how you work what the process is and they learn to uh, trust you or not trust you based on how you handle those situations. And are there things that are too gruesome, that are too unsavory, and you just say, no, we can't. We have oh, yeah. to draw a line somewhere. Yeah. And we're, we're all, you know, the, the most common criticism of television, or one of the most common criticisms is, you know, the if it bleeds, it leads right. theory. It's just so untrue. You know, every day there are things that we see through the coverage of whether it's a war or a car accident or a home fire that we just say, we're not putting this on the air. It's too much mm -hmm. and there's no need to, it's gratuitous to run it. But people and especially our critics will say, oh, they'll put anything on they can get their hands on. It's just not true. Um, we see a lot of awful stuff. Now, occasionally you make the very difficult decision that it's awful and we normally wouldn't run this, but today we're going to because we are trying to make a point to underline how terrible a certain situation is. We've done it a couple of times with the war in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, and we properly warn everybody and say we're going today to lengths we don't normally go to, but we're doing it because this is a brutal, ugly, filthy war. And uh, there are times when we tell the serious story where we figure people are just eyes glossed over, move on, I've heard this before. Well, every once in a while, you got to tell them, you got to remind them that what's happening here is unacceptable in, in the world we live in, and uh, they need to see it. Now, we still exercise certain restraint, but still we go beyond where we normally go. And I think, and when I say we, I'm talking about the collective we, mm -hmm. I think all of news organizations do something similar to that. There's a, a new film uh, in theaters called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and it's about Kim Barker. She is a journalist who was working for the Chicago Tribune in print and then switched over and became a correspondent, ended up being one of the longest serving correspondents in Afghanistan and in Pakistan uh, around 2003, 2004, and then ended up staying for most of, of, of the, the aughts. And she says that her editors, after a certain point, said, we support the troops. Absolutely, 100% support the troops. Nobody wants to hear about this anymore. Nobody wants these stories anymore. And they backed off on these stories from Afghanistan because there were, you know, sexier news stories happening in Iraq or Iran or, you know, in the neighboring areas. And then things changed again and sort of attention shifted back there. But it was a really interesting comment on, on the decisions that have to be made. And, you know, that, that does happen. And, uh, you know, what happened to her has happened to, to others. I can remember the 1980s, remember when the, the, the various wars were going on mm -hmm. in Central America, El Salvador and Nicaragua. Um, Joe Schlesinger, one of the okay. greatest foreign correspondents uh, we've ever had, 
Um, Joe was in El Salvador and he was telling a story about uh, this uh, small town outside of the capital, San Salvador, uh, where there had been, uh, where the rebels had come down from the hills, freed the town from government forces, there'd been celebrations, he was there, then all of a sudden he heard the helicopter gunships coming in of the government forces uh, and shooting the place up. They came into town, killed all the, uh, all the, all the rebels. Um, and then did awful things with their mutilated bodies. Now, Joe had all this on, on video, and he cut a story. He said, this is going to be gruesome, but I'm cutting this story, and he sent it up, and we came in by satellite about 15 minutes before airtime, and uh, we looked at it and said, we can't run that. It's too much. Um, and, uh, you know, take out this part and that mm -hmm. part. And then Joe phoned to say, did you get the feed? And we said, yeah, we got it, but Joe, you know, it's really, and he, Joe went crazy. Ex exactly the same way probably the person you're talking mm -hmm. about did in saying, you guys are just bored of the story. Right. Every once in a while, you got to take a stand. This was awful what happened here. People got to understand what's going on here. And so he won the argument by the, the voice of uh, his persuasion on the, on, on, the, uh, on the phone, and we ran it. Now, nobody thanked us for running that. We got nothing but criticism, um, but no one who saw it will ever forget it. How do you deal with criticism? Well, you have to accept the fact that people care enough about you to criticize you, mm -hmm. right? So you start from that, and I, I, I tell the people that I work with that, listen, the, the fact they're telling us they're criticizing us is a good thing. We're the public broadcaster. We're going to accept that. But we have to stand for what we believe in. And if they're right, we'll adjust. Uh, if they're not, we'll explain why, if we don't believe what they're saying. Uh, so you do that. You know, other kind of gratuitous criticism, and, you know, we get, we get lots of it. Um, you just say, well, it's, you know, it is what it is, and you move on. Peter, thank you so much for coming in. Richard, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you. That was Peter Mansbridge, one of the most recognizable voices in the country. He retires this week after 50 years with the CBC. Early on in the interview, he mentioned that he's a high school dropout. Uh, but let's not forget to mention that right now, as of this week, he has 13 honorary degrees. So he's probably one of the most decorated people in the country in terms of honorary degrees anyway. We first laid eyes on Captain Canuck in 1975 when he was created by cartoonist Ron Leishman and artist and writer Richard Cumley. Captain Canuck, of course, is that great Canadian superhero. He's published sporadically over the decades since 1975, uh, most recently under the heading of Chapter House Comics, who this week announced that Jay Baruchel, the great Canadian movie star, uh, the director of Goon, uh, The Last of the Enforcers, and loads of other stuff. Everybody loves Jay, and he's now bringing uh, his wit and insightful kind of way of thinking and different way of thinking uh, to the Captain Canuck franchise. I can hardly wait to see what they came up with. I dug around in the vault a little bit, and I found an interview from a few years ago with Richard Cumley, who describes the beginnings of Captain Canuck. Richard, before we, we switched on the microphones, we were talking that I had interviewed you about 20 years ago uh, for Captain Canuck Reborn, and even then, the character had been around for a long time. So let's go right back to the very beginning. It's the early 70s. 
there is no Canadian superhero. There had been the odd one here and there in comic book form, but you wanted to bring something back. Well, I don't think there had been really anything. Um, it, it all really started in 1971 when I met Ron Leishman at church. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would get together and uh, he would say we were both artists, cartoonists. Um, um, and he said, you know, there should be a Canadian superhero. And we, we talked about it and uh, um, we, we talked about it often. Mm-hmm. And uh, about 1973, we got really serious about it. And that's when we decided on the name Captain Canuck. Uh, there there had actually been a few Captain Canadas. I think there had been about four, and one of them had moose horns. And, <laughs> and so we, that had <laughs> s- spoiled it. And, and, and drank maple syrup yeah. as fuel. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, it wasn't until 74 that I really started to do some work on the whole project. And the first issue came out in 1975. And, you know, that's at the time because it was an independent comic book that you were releasing, right? So what was it? I mean, was it a a, a sense of a stirring sense of national pride or was it uh, you saw a hole in the marketplace or what was it that that brought you to that? Both and more, actually. Uh, But the, yeah, there was, there was a void to be filled. Mm -hmm. And and I think our timing was good. We we didn't know our timing was going to be good. And uh, um, by that time, Ron was serving a mission in France, and so we got to see it from a very a far distance, so to right. speak. You know what I mean? And uh, but when um, when I started, I mean, I I really didn't know even that much about comic books. Mm. I I had worked as a graphic designer. I'd worked as a crest designer. I'd done fashion styling or or clothing design, I should say. And this was a new world to me. I had to learn a lot. And uh, in, in the beginning, I, you know, p- people ask, why, you know, why didn't you talk to Marvel or, or DC? Mm-hmm. And n- never crossed my mind, to be honest with you. Right. I, I had a meeting with an, ex- an executive from Harlequin Magazine, uh, a Harlequin Romance, excuse me, <clears throat> and they were interested. Somebody came from, from Toronto to Winnipeg, where I was based, and... Uh, they took me to lunch, and they were definitely interested. And I, I might have gone with them, and I might, I might have come to Toronto much, much sooner in my life. Right. Uh, but um, I had a, an accountant friend who talked me into uh, setting up my own publishing operation because he told me I could get lots of government money <laughs> to, to do that. That's what they all say. Yeah. yeah. I, got, I, I didn't get a dime in the end and, right. after lots of trying, you know. <clears throat> so that was the beginning. <laughs> You reinvented them, it seems like, every 20 years at least, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, it you know, started in 75, and um, in, well, and that first, what we call the original series, ended about 81. Right. And that wasn't even a smooth run, totally. Uh, I started it again in 93. And what, what's kind of interesting about ni- 1993 is back in 75, I was writing uh, about Captain Knuck in the future, in the relatively near future, and I set the date as 1993. Right. And, and, and I, you know, and 1993 seemed hard to imagine back then. And, well, anyways, it was an in, interesting coincidence that I started Captain Canuck Reborn mm-hmm. in 1993. And I started a newspaper strip uh, in 95, and that's the year that the postage stamp came out. Right. What has right. kept you coming back to the character? 
Well, a, a lot of it has just been fans. I mean, I've done other things. I've done children's books and advertising and greeting cards and and even video production and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, but no, I mean, I it's never left my system. I guess really. That's Richard Cumley talking about his creation, Captain Canuck, someone who stands for all that is good and pure and who is proud of his country. We'll wrap it up there on this Canada Day edition of the House of Krauss. Thanks for coming by. Thanks to Peter Mansbridge. Best of luck in whatever comes next for you. Thank you to Richard Cumley for coming by. Thank you, Captain Canuck. Most of all, thanks to you, though, who come back every single week to hear the interviews and the conversations, everything that happens at the House of Cross. We put up a new show every single Monday. Make sure you don't miss one. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows, it just might be one of your favorite people. 